is taken over from uh, Wayne Rebilliard. And I do hope that you'll be able to attend that. And uh, so we do want to also take up a uh, Thanksgiving offering uh, that weekend. And uh, we want to uh, do it to fix the leak on the side of the building here, which is causing the Sunday school room to flood. Spent so much on fixing this side, this, now we got to fix this. <laughs> Uh, and it's quite expensive. So we do want to raise about 10000 to fix that leak. Not part, it was not part of our building plan. So if you'll be thinking about uh, what the Lord would have you do towards that, it'd be great. Children, waterproof that side of the building, in there with the digger and dig it out and do it down. Fix it up. And then don't forget the uh, Christianity Explored class as well. I think that's going to be great. Great opportunity to invite friends, family, neighbors. I've got somebody in mind I'm going to invite. You too. Our cards back there. Please grab some on the way out. Probably have any cards left. We'd love to hand them all out. Uh, so feel free to do that as well. All right. Um, Let's open our Bibles uh, to Revelation 19. Revelation 19. And it's wonderful to uh, be now dealing with the last four chapters of this book, which bring together uh, all of the prophetic streams of Old Testament scriptures, prophecies there, and so much of what our Lord taught on the earth and uh, what the apostles wrote about, uh, bringing all of that to a concluding climax. I think it's so helpful to see a picture in these chapters uh, of how it's all going to play out by the hand of Almighty God. And this, of course, is an end uh, that he purposed in eternity past. It's been a while since we were in Revelation, but you may recall that Last time, we covered the first six verses of this chapter, uh, where we have a series of four hallelujahs. Uh, this is the only chapter in the New Testament uh, where that word occurs. And you may remember that this is actually a word of exhortation that is addressed to all of God's people. We are commanded to praise the Lord, because all of this is finally uh, being done. Well, following that, we have two things in the rest of chapter 19. Uh, verse 11 tells us that John sees heaven opened and a white horse appears with a majestic figure riding it. In verse 16, it says his name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And in verse 19, and I saw the beast, kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him. So first of all, chapter 19 describes in some detail the final end-time war. But before that happens, verses 7 to 10 give us something else. Verse 7 says, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. The marriage of the Lamb has come. And here we are told about a wedding. So in Revelation 19, we have a 
wedding and a war. Uh, we are told that at the end of seven years of God's disciplinary process with the nation of Israel and is pressuring all the nations of the earth through hardships while evangelizing with finality all the people of the earth. When all of that is over, there's going to be a real war. But just before that, there's going to be a real wedding with a real groom and an actual bride and a bridal dress and a feast and guests and joy such as this world has never known. It's going to be a wedding. Now, all of us who are married should remember the feeling uh, that we had when we looked forward to our wedding day. Uh, it just seems as if time couldn't go fast enough. Maybe you ladies recall the day when he went down on one knee, maybe two knees, he was begging, uh, and he asked you to marry him. Uh, maybe it was in complete privacy, or maybe it was in a restaurant, maybe it was with strangers clapping and uh, surrounding you, but I'm sure you remember that moment, and then you set the date for your wedding. Well, the days in between just kind of dragged by, didn't they? Uh, you wanted to get them out of the way. And the only thing that you could think of from the moment you got up in the morning until finally dropped off to sleep that night was your wedding day. Well, I don't know how frequently any of us think about this wedding or whether we are motivated by it at all. But what is apparent is that the prospect of being at this wedding is intended by God to motivate us as much as any other event in our future, uh, as much as our death, as much as the possibility of being alive at Christ's coming, as much as we anticipate heaven and eternity. We should also be motivated by this coming wedding. I want to preach to you this morning on the marriage of the Lamb. Now, what is this wedding all about? Well, answer that question, you have to know, first of all, who's getting married? Very important. Verse 7 says that this is the marriage of the Lamb. It says, let us be glad and rejoice, give Him glory for the marriage of the Lamb come. Now, you have to completely lay aside our modern wedding customs. Uh, in our civilization, the day of the marriage really is the bride's day. All eyes are on the bride as she comes down the aisle. This was not the case in Bible times, and this will not be the case in the future. At this wedding, in the first century, all of the attention is on the groom, the marriage of the Lamb. Who is this? Well, we simply let the Word of God speak for itself. You may remember that when we open the Gospels, there is an individual the second person of the Godhead, who takes on flesh, when he grows into adulthood, the last of the Old Testament preachers steps onto the stage of human history, and he points out this person, and he proclaims, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Recorded in John 1.29, and he says it again in verse 36. 
So we know that Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, is the Lamb. What's important for us to understand and just probe for a few moments is why at the wedding he is still referred to as the Lamb. I mean, out of all the other titles and aspects of his glory that are revealed in his many names, why would he still be referred to as the Lamb on his wedding day? Well, there are only two other passages in the New Testament before the book of Revelation in which he is referred to as a lamb. So I want to take a moment and look at both of these. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Acts 8, which is the next time after John's Gospel that you see him referred to as a lamb. Acts 8, you may recall, is the record of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Acts 8, verse 32 says, the place in the Scripture which he read was this. He got this passage quoted from the Old Testament. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, though he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? Life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of some other man? And Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now what Old Testament prophet was this man reading from? Somebody. Isaiah. And what chapter was he reading from in Isaiah? 53. Philip identified the figure in this prophecy as being Jesus. But when he did so and explained this passage to him, notice that the first line of that prophecy says, he was led as a sheep to the slaughter. And the last line of verse 33, his life is taken from the earth. So clearly this passage is speaking of him as a lamb because it is referring to with sacrificial death. The only other passage before Revelation that refers to him as a lamb is in 1 Peter. Turn to chapter 1 of 1 Peter, if you would. And there you have verse 18, which says that our redemption was not with corruptible things. In other words, when God purchased us back from all of the effects of sin in our humanity, and He gave us new life. It did not come with a price tag involving any earthly, perishable thing. But in verse 19, it was with blood, precious blood. He says, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And who is the Lamb? Whose blood was shed? The, blood, uh, the verse says it was the blood of the Messiah. It was the blood of Christ, God's anointed one. So there should be no question in our minds that when our Lord appears in the figure of a Lamb, there's only one aspect of His work that is being emphasized, and that is His self-substitution in a bloody, sacrificial death. Behold, God's Lamb 
who takes away the sin of the world and who does so at the cost of his own blood. Now, the book of Revelation first refers to him in this way in chapter 5, which we looked at when we went through that chapter some time ago. And beginning in verse 5, it says, But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb. It says, as though it had been slain. And that is the first of 28 times in the book when he is referred to as the lamb. The lamb standing as if it had just been slain. In other words, this book continues focusing on the character of Jesus as the substitutionary crucified one. Now, what is the significance of that and the fact that the great majority uh, of references to the Lamb in the entire New Testament are all sprinkled into only 11 chapters in this last book? Well, it calls our attention to the fact that this one who finally has a wedding is the crucified Lamb of God. And that brings us to this, who is the bride at the wedding? Well, turn to Ephesians 5, and I want to show you that as well. Ephesians 5, uh, which is uh, the most comprehensive explanation of the roles of a husband and wife uh, that can be found anywhere in Scripture. Ephesians 5 and verse 25 uh, is where the husbands are addressed, and it's in these terms. Husbands, love your wives. And you've got this wording, just as Christ, the Messiah, also loved the church. And here's the significant part for us. And gave himself for her. Now, the reason this verse is important for us is really because of what it combines. Begin with, apparent that this verse answers the question regarding the identity of the bride. Now, the whole passage tells us that the bride is the entity for which he gave himself. Then throughout the passage, Paul parallels the relationship between a husband and wife with, with that between Christ and the church. And he actually makes that connection quite clear when he says in verse 32, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So there cannot be any doubt in interpreting the bride of the Lamb as the church. But in combination with that, verse 25 also brings in the groom as the crucified Lamb who gave Himself for her. Now, there's no other marriage like that in human history. Acts 20.28 says that God purchased the church with His own blood. And the fact is, no other groom has ever purchased his bride at the cost of his life and yet lived to marry her. But the Lamb will do just that. He has given His life blood and then risen again. By virtue of His sacrifice, He will embrace the one He has purchased to be His bride. And if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are part of that bride. 
This is the significance of Jesus Christ uh, as a lamb at his wedding. Because it is as a lamb that he gave himself to redeem his bride. Paul writes of us in 2 Corinthians 11.2, I have betrothed you to one husband as a chaste virgin to Christ. Now that, I think, is quite remarkable when you recall that he addressed those same Corinthians and told them in his first letter to them, he said, some of you were fornicators and some of you were thieves and some of you were homosexuals and some of you were extortioners and drunkards and sodomites. And then he says, but you are washed. Now you are betrothed to be a pure, chaste virgin. Obviously, the wonderful application of that to all of us who know the Lord is that regardless of our background and our past and the grossness and the wickedness and the depth of our sin and the deep damage of what we have done to ourselves. In Christ, we are pure. We are a virgin bride who is betrothed to the Lamb. Now, I want you to return then to Revelation 20 because, actually, let's go to 21 because here I think the picture does get a little more complex for us. Revelation 21 Uh, is after the millennium in chapter 20, which describes the thousand-year reign of the King of Kings on earth. Well, after that, verse 1 says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, listen to this, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Verse 9, Then one of the angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain, showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with twelve gates and twelve angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Verse 14, now the wall of the city had twelve foundations. On them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Now, again, who is the bride? Well, unquestionably we know at this point that the bride is the church. But a thousand years later, the new Jerusalem descends out of heaven and it has twelve foundations and on them are the names of the twelve apostles. Well, Those guys are all part of the church, right? In the walls, there are also 12 gates, and every gate has a name, but on those uh, gates, those names are the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, those guys weren't in the church because the church was a new thing, inaugurated 
on the day of Pentecost. In fact, John the Baptist, who announced, Behold the Lamb, you remember that he later on referred to himself as the friend of the bridegroom. In other words, as uh, the last of the Old Testament prophets, he got to introduce the groom to the potential bride. And he stood beside the groom as the friend of the bridegroom, but he himself was not part of the church. Died before the institution of the church, one of the Old Testament uh, people of God. But evidently, in eternity, when all the people of God are one, they are all the bride. I mean, the bride inhabits the city, yes, but at the same time, Notice she is the city because she's called the city. This is a mixed metaphor. So she includes the 12 tribes. She includes the 12 apostles. She includes all the united people of God. Now, theologically, that really shouldn't be any problem for any of us because the Scripture is quite clear that no one will be in the presence of God who doesn't get there on the basis of of the sacrificial giving of Jesus Christ himself. In other words, uh, no one, no one in the Old Testament, no one in the New Testament, no one in the tribulation, no one even in the millennial period is ever redeemed at any cost less than the blood of the Lamb. All the people of God are only cleansed by the blood of God's Son. So in eternity, they will all be united with him. And what a glory that will be for him. What a living testament to his love and his grace and his mercy. The wonder that Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross as the lamb. And it says he despised its shame. The word despised in that verse means he thought little of it. He thought little of the most shameful public execution someone could experience. He thought little of it for the joy of being the groom and anticipating his wedding day with his longed-for bride. Now back to chapter 19, verse 8, where we are told at the end of verse 7, and in verse 8, that the bride gets to make herself ready for this. Uh, the bride prepares herself. The conclusion of verse 7 says, and his wife has made herself ready. And verse 8 then explains it in this way. And to her, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. About that. The bride makes herself ready by being given fine linen, clean and bright to clothe herself. That fine linen consists of her righteous acts. Now, please do not be confused by this at all. I can assure you that no one is going to be at that wedding and no one is even going to enter that city who is not there on the basis of the imputed righteousness of the Son of God. The apostle says to his son in the faith, Titus, that it is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but it is according to his mercy that he saved us. 
Let me get that on the table. However, that doesn't mean that our good works are meaningless after we are saved. Because we are also taught in Scripture that there are Christian acts that will last forever. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3 that when all of our works are examined, some of them are just going to burn up. Well, some of them will last for eternity. It'll be like gold and silver and precious stones, and it will consist of what we have done on this earth before the wedding as the betrothed wife of Jesus Christ. Then, on that day, the bride herself is given a linen material that is bright, that is clean, and it represents her righteous acts in preparation for the wedding day. Now, almost as a footnote, I want you to notice the contrast between that clothing and what you see back in chapter 18, verse 16. Remember that Babylon, the great city on earth during the tribulation, is also clothed in fine linen. But in addition to that, she's wearing purple and scarlet, and she's adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. And the picture there is of someone who is gaudy and all painted up. Well, in contrast to that, you have this beautiful simplicity in bright and clean linen. Hardly anything more beautiful than a bride who's wearing nothing more than what is white and clean. That will be the Lord's bride in that day, representing her acts of goodness and righteousness. Now, when you add what it says in Ephesians 5 about what the Lord has done for the church, what is apparent is that the Lord gave Himself, and the next verse says, so that He might present her to Himself in a certain way, that without spot or wrinkle, but holy and without blemish. In other words, the Lord Himself is clearly at work in this, not just us. It's the same concept you have in verse 8 of our text, where it says, to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen. In other words, it is given by God's grace and power to be able to ready ourselves with righteous acts. Like it says in Philippians 2.13, that it is God who works in you, who, who energizes you both to do, or to will and to do of His good pleasure. Same concept. But at the same time, 1 John 3.3 says that everyone who has this hope of seeing the bridegroom in that day purifies himself. In other words, uh, if you want to live in anticipation, if you want to ready yourself for his coming, I want to be ready when he comes. Well, how are you going to do that? All right? By doing righteous acts day by day. Acts that are righteous because they are done for the Lord. You know, every young woman who is engaged eagerly prepares herself. Something wrong with her. She didn't. Uh, when my wife and I were engaged, we had a short engagement. Uh, we were 10,000 kilometers apart during our engagement, close to one another except Jeanette. Terrible. April readied herself. And I've had the privilege of giving away one of my daughters and watching her go through this joyful preparations before 
her wedding day. And uh, so it is that we, as the Lord's people, are given this privilege is granted to us. Verse 8, to be able to do something that springs from the joy and the expectation and the gratitude of our hearts for what He has done. I mean, what a, what a wonder that He would choose me. Well, the privilege is given to me now. Make myself ready. That is a gift from God for you to do that. You know, when the day comes, and we're all standing there as the bride, believe me, you're not going to be looking at your clothing. It's not going to be the focus. Our eyes will be on Him. I've used this illustration before, but you remember the hymn from Samuel Rutherford, that uh, 17th century Scottish preacher. Rutherford was exiled from his people in Aberdeen, Scotland, but he'd write these personal letters back to his flock in Anwaf. Uh, he wrote 365 letters, and he compiled them into a book, uh, the letters of Samuel Rutherford. Well, a woman named Anne Roth Cousins uh, ransacked those letters for the language that Rutherford used to describe the love of Christ, and she put them into a hymn, Sands of Time or Sinking. The last stanza of that hymn says this, The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze on glory, but on my King of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. Now, when? When is this wedding going to occur? Well, the timing is not explicitly stated in the passage, nor is it stated anywhere else, I might add. But I think we can assume that the chronological sequence of the events in Revelation is intended by God to inform us of the timing. In other words, we have the wedding inserted at this point in the book because this is where it occurs in the sequence of events in Revelation. That's what I would assume. Now, that means three things. Number one, it will clearly happen after the Lord takes the bride to Himself, which will happen when He catches us up to meet Him in the air. In other words, this has to occur after the rapture. Till that time, we are betrothed, separated physically, just like my my wife and I were distanced by thousands of kilometers when we were engaged. But this, in this case here, uh, the groom is in heaven. His betrothed is on earth. But at the rapture, not only will we be caught up and united with Him here as people who are alive, if it's this generation, but the dead in Christ will also rise and be united with Him in body and in spirit. So it can't happen until after the rapture. Secondly, I would assume that it occurs after the Bema, or what we also refer to as the judgment seat of Christ. The Bema, uh, you may remember, is a time that is reserved for Christians, recorded in 2 Corinthians 5.10, when we receive rewards according to what we did on the earth as believers. Nothing to do with gaining entrance into heaven. That's already secured. You know Christ, you got a ticket, and nobody's going to take that ticket away. He promised you that. But this is the time I mentioned earlier when all of our works as believers 
are going to be put to the test of fire, and some of our works will not remain. Some of them will. The passage says some are going to be burned up. They're going to be classified as wood and hay and stubble. Let me just ask you this question. How many of that was in your life yesterday? Well, hopefully, some of the things we did yesterday, some of the things we did this past week, will last forever. And only when all of that is sorted out can the bride be ready and then clothed in the linen that is woven with those righteous acts that have remained. In other words, think of the bema as the time when the material is being prepared for the bridal dress. So this, uh, I think, has to happen after that evaluation. And then thirdly, because of the placement in the book, I would assume that it happens after all of the events uh, previous to this in chapters 6 through 18, the tribulation events. I mean, the great harlot is finally destroyed. There's no rival left at all. And so the bride, the genuine woman for the Lamb, the church, steps forward. So I would assume that this is after the rapture, after the bema, after the tribulation, but before Christ's actual return to earth. You look at verse 14, it says that when He comes on that great white charger, the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, clean and white, are following him. The book of Jude says, when he comes like that, he comes with ten thousands of his saints. Well, that's us. That's his bride. We are coming with him. We are clothed in this linen when we come. So I would assume that the placement that you have right here really is the chronology of the event which means it's just before his coming to earth to wage war on the nations. It's almost as if we have this wedding, and then we all just get up and follow him back to earth. But before we leave, we've got to eat. Got to eat at a wedding, right? That brings us finally to the wedding reception. They're going to eat, verse 9, Then he said to me, write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. In Bible times, again, the wedding supper or wedding feast was quite an event. In our Western civilization, when we have a wedding, of course, we always have a reception. I came to my first wedding, 1989. Yes, I'm that old. After I graduated from college, had a reception. I served three things at my reception. You went, you got nuts, you got mints, you got a piece of cake. Full punch. That was typical for an American wedding reception at the time. That's what they said. Thank you. It was budget. Yes. <laughs> Guy just out of college, that's what you have. Now, in Australia, of course, we have a nice three-course meal with all the extras, and you sit down for six hours. Parents have to take a second mortgage on the house to pay for it. Typically, it is the most expensive part of the wedding. It's not unusual to drop 20K on one of those things. Ask, uh, who just had a wedding? Emma and Ann, my Nina and Daniel, so on. 
big, big expense. But in Bible times, it was days of eating. Uh, I mean, you were feasting. It was imagine that, dads paying for days of that. You know, think for, think of being invited to one of those things. Uh, uh, think back to the wedding in John two, our Lord attended. Think of that dramatic moment when all the wine was exhausted. How embarrassing for the host! Didn't budget enough for that, did he? But of course, Jesus stepped in to remedy the situation. What an amazing wedding gift to remember. Well, the indication seems to be that the wedding supper of the Lamb uh, will also be drawn out in order to prolong the joy. I mean, this is the climactic event for the Lamb in His relationship with His people. The climactic event in all of redemptive history. Groom and the bride are finally wedded together in person. There ain't going to be no nuts, mints, and punch. I promise you that. It's going to be a feast. Uh, it's wonderful to anticipate being there and feasting with Jesus Christ, isn't it? The night that he died as the Lamb of God, he actually said to his followers, I'm not going to drink this fruit of the vine with you again until I drink it new in the kingdom. He's not drunk it since that night. The day is coming when he will drink wine with us. We are going to. Now, there are several times in the Gospels when our Lord referred to this wedding supper, and I don't want to turn to the passages today for the sake of time, but I want to tell you about them, and I just want to extract what is significant about uh, the wedding supper in those passages. In Matthew 22, the Lord taught his listeners about a king who had a wedding feast for his son. Sound familiar? Well, the servants invited people who simply wouldn't come, and it just really angered the king. And so he destroyed those people, and he burned their city. And then he sent his servants back out in order to invite all of the undesirables. A lot of them came in. And the point of the story is this. You better come when you hear the invitation. Because the alternative to that is destruction. Of course, the people the Lord was addressing when he told that story were the same people who were destroyed along with their city just a few decades later. God burned their city under the Romans because he came unto his own and his own received him not. Well, three chapters later in Matthew 25, the Lord tells another story that has a little bit of mystery surrounding it. But it's a story about ten virgins. They were all waiting for the bridegroom to come. And it sounds as if there's going to be ten wives, doesn't it? But again, you've got to remember that the bride is comprised of every tongue and uh, every nation, uh, every tribe. There could be millions and millions of individuals from every walk of life. So there are ten virgins representing the diversity in this story. Now, five of those virgins really prepared themselves. And when they heard the shout that the bridegroom was coming, they went into the wedding supper. The other five were left behind. The message of that story is simply you need to make yourself ready. Talking about that earlier, make yourself ready with righteous acts. The most humbling thing, though, that the Lord said about 
the wedding supper is in Luke 12. Our Lord was giving the same admonition about being ready for the supper. And he said in verse 35, that your waist be girded, that means let it be ready, and your lamps burning, note verse 36, and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding. I want to pause there for just a moment and and, um, uh, comment about the length of this wedding. The Lord here is speaking to the nation of Israel, speaking to the Jews. He's talking to them about being ready for when a man comes back from a wedding feast. What's that talking about? Well, that's exactly the situation in Revelation 19, right? It's going to be a wedding and a wedding feast, and he's coming to earth with his saints straight from that wedding feast. Well, keep in mind that for seven years, he's been disciplining that Messiah-rejecting nation. And as a result, Zechariah says that some of those people will look on him when he comes, and finally their eyes will be opened, and they will see him whom they have pierced, and a fountain of cleansing will be opened to them. In addition to those Jews, there's also going to be people on the earth, people who have endured the terrible persecutions of the Antichrist, who have made themselves ready, but they were not at the wedding feast. And I think this passage seems to be reflecting that in the timing. Verse 36 again, be like those men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, when he comes back to earth after the wedding and the marriage supper of the Lamb, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. In verse 37, blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Surely I say to you, and listen to this, I think this is amazing. Surely I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. I don't know uh, the exact attendance list at the wedding. When it comes to who serves, it's not the angels, the Lord himself. He said, I serve. So the one who comes is actually going to take his own servants and going to uh, direct them to recline at the tables. Then he will wait on them. If that seems totally inappropriate to you or inappropriate really for for any wedding feast to uh, have the groom serving like that, then you just need to project yourself back to a room that has a central figure and a group, a little group of men, and those men are arguing about who's the greatest. But then that one central figure, without a word, puts a towel around his waist and he washes their feet. The next day, he is their sacrificial lamb. If it occurs to you, you know, to be like Peter, you pull your feet up under your robe, and to say, no, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. No way. I mean, you, you're not going to wait on me at this wedding. No, you sit down, Lord, I'll serve you. That's your attitude. Then remember that he was already your lamb, and you had to let him do that. In other words, he gets to do what he wants to his bride because he purchased you blood. 
What He wants to do is serve you at the wedding supper. He's going to do it. Now, when you consider the love, the overwhelming, humbling, eternal love of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God for His bride, for you. And think about this for a moment. What is there about me? What is there about you that even begins to attract that kind of affection in His heart? Let alone the giving of Himself so excruciatingly a bloody execution. What is there about us that He would choose us? Nothing. What absolute, wondrous, indescribable, inexplicable love. If that's the case, then just take it one step further. He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not also freely give us all things, everything, earth and heaven and the new Jerusalem, and glory and eternity, the resurrection body and His presence, let alone the forgiveness of our sins. So much more. They're mine in Christ. How could you ever doubt His love in this life? How could you ever fail to love Him in return? How could we fail to be motivated by the love of our group? To close this morning, I want you to meditate on this. When we get up tomorrow morning, we will have a fresh opportunity to do some righteous act for Jesus even if it's only a cup of cold water in His name, I promise you, He will remember it. It will last for eternity. It will form the very fabric wedding dress. That's bow for prayer. Your head's bowed. I really haven't done an invitation in a long time, but I do want to take a moment uh, for you 